heard a story recently about a young Christian woman who was in an art gallery, and while she was strolling through the exhibit, she stopped at a painting depicting Jesus' crucifixion. And while she was examining that, that painting, she was approached by a younger woman who stopped and asked, who's that a picture of? The first lady was completely dumbfounded by the question. She said, you're joking, right? To which the younger lady responded, well, no, should I know who that is? The first lady responded with, uh, yeah, yeah, you should. That's, that's Jesus. And this is a painting showing his death by crucifixion. And the other woman stood there for a moment staring at the painting. And then after a little while, she simply responded with, how tragic. And then she left. Well, the first woman continued to just stand there shocked that a a grown woman had never heard about Jesus. And after some time, she soon felt the urge to go and find the woman. She frantically searched all throughout the art gallery, couldn't find her. So she then began to describe her to other people who were there. And thankfully, she was able to find someone who, who did know the woman. She got contact information for this woman, and she contacted her by phone. And when she got her on the phone, she explained who she was, and she said, I'm sorry to bother you. I know this is strange, but I failed to tell you the rest of that story about that painting that you asked me about. She said, though Jesus' death was tragic, it is also glorious. Because the person you saw in that painting crucified, though he died, he is not still dead. He is, in fact, alive. He has risen from the dead. I love that story because in the story, this woman goes to great lengths to let the other woman know that Jesus is not dead, but is, in fact, alive. He is risen. And what you find as you read through this book, God's book, is you find the writers all throughout the New Testament go to great lengths to make this point as well. And John is no exception. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 20. Last week, on Palm Sunday, we're in John 19. And we discussed John's account of Jesus' crucifixion. And today, we're going to look at his account of Jesus' resurrection. And what you find as we look through, what you'll find as we look through this account today, is just like in the account of Jesus' crucifixion, in the account account of Jesus' resurrection, John has a specific reason for writing. He's not just simply reporting historical facts about Jesus. He has a specific purpose for writing. We talked last week about the fact that when John writes about the crucifixion, he's not just simply telling all the agonizing details of that event, though it was agonizing. But John's intent for writing is to highlight the majesty and the glory and the beauty of the crucified king. And in John chapter 20, he's doing more than just reporting historical facts about Jesus as well. What he's doing here 
is he is laying out the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. John is laying out the proof of his resurrection so that Jesus can be looked to and trusted and followed as the Christ, as the risen Lord, as our God and King. And folks, let me say this right off the bat. Everything hinges on this event right here. Do you know that? I had a professor in college once say, if they could only find the body, Christianity could be done away with. Though I wasn't bold enough back then to say it, I, I, I would like to think that my response to that professor today would be, yeah, they haven't, so what should that tell us? You know? Folks, the fact that the tomb is empty makes all the difference in the world. Because the tomb is empty, everything about Christ is validated. Everything about this Bible we have is substantiated. Everything about what we believe as Christians is authenticated. And John understands this, which is why he goes to great lengths to show us the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. First, he makes mention of an unlikely witness. That's point number one. That's the first piece of evidence John gives for Jesus' resurrection is an unlikely witness. Look at John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Let me stop there for a minute. You're going to notice when you read these different accounts in your spiritual growth guide this week that there are different details mentioned. And the reason why is because throughout this day, Mary was going back and forth to the tomb. Okay, And notice this time it's while it's still dark. Later on, the sun's out. But she goes at first, and all she sees is an empty tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Let's stop there. Notice what we have here. Jesus has died, he's been buried, and on the first day of the week, a Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the place where Jesus was buried. And I know many of you already know this already, but bear with me while I briefly give you a timeline of the events here. First, on Friday, Jesus is crucified and buried. The next day, the seventh day of the week is Saturday. That's the Sabbath, so no one goes anywhere, does anything on that day. And then on the first day of the week, on Sunday, Mary goes to Jesus' tomb. Now, why does she go there? Well, the other gospel writers help us with this. In Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verse 1, Mark tells us, and you have this in your spiritual growth guide as well, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. First notice, Mark tells us there's more than one lady at the tomb. So Mary is not alone. She's accompanied by Mary the mother of James and Salome. Now don't get all bent out of shape over that, okay? These aren't conflicting accounts. What you have here is two different guys telling the same story with different details. We do it all the time, right? John focuses mainly in on Mary Magdalene because she's the main focus of this account anyways. And then Mark mentions that there are three ladies all together. And, and we don't know if, if they were with 
all three with her at the first time she goes to the tomb, but we do know that when she goes to the disciples, she says, we have seen this. So she's speaking plural. John makes mention of that. So there's more than one with Mary Magdalene. John makes that known as well, okay? Not conflicting accounts, different details. Then notice Mark tells us why they went. He says they went to the tomb to bring spices to go and anoint Jesus' body with spices. Now that probably sounds strange and foreign to, to, to you, all right? But this was a customary practice in this day. In this day, in the first century, when someone died the, and, and buried, the women would often go and they would anoint the body with spices, and they would do it in honor of the one whom had passed. So Mary and some of these other women, they get up, they go to the tomb. My guess is they're hoping someone will be there to remove the stone so that they can go into the tomb and anoint Jesus' body with spices. Now, there's something very important here that I want you to understand. It's key. Mary and these other women are going to the tomb expecting to see Jesus in it. You with me? They were not looking at this time for the risen Christ. They were expecting Jesus to still be in the tomb. They were expecting to find Jesus' dead body. That's what they were expecting. That's why they take spices with them. That's why they were going to anoint Jesus' dead body with spices. But notice when they get there, the stone is rolled away and the body is gone. Notice how they react. This is also telling. Look at John chapter 20, verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John, by the way. So she runs to Peter and John and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we, notice that's plural there, more than one was with Mary, we do not know where they have laid him. Think about what we have here. When they come to the empty tomb at first, do they say, yay, a resurrection? We were hoping this would happen. Is that their response? No. Mary says someone has taken the body. So to Mary, the only logical explanation for the empty tomb is that someone has taken Jesus' body. So again, they're not looking for, they're not anticipating a resurrection. And when they come to the empty tomb, they still think Jesus is dead somewhere. Now, why is this important for me to point out? Well, I'll tell you. Because this is the exact way many would respond today. You know, when it comes to the miracles of Christian, uh, the Christian faith, like healing and resurrections and the virgin birth, many respond today like Mary and the others do initially. They think, well, there must be a logical explanation because these types of things don't happen. They reason in this way. They say, you know, people today, they say, we live in a modern world and and we're smart enough to know better. We know things like resurrections don't happen, but you know what many skeptics in our world today do? They often accuse those in the first century who reported these types of things to be uneducated, ignorant, and superstitious people who didn't think rationally and logically. But, but notice again here, Mary and the others, they're thinking extremely logically, extremely rationally. When they approach the empty tomb, they're not quick to believe that a resurrection has occurred. 
They think the only explanation is that someone has taken the body. The resurrection was the furthest thing from their minds, even though Jesus told them time and time again it was going to be raised, right? So the people in this day, in the first century, they weren't just sitting around waiting and expecting on things like miracles and resurrections to occur. Remember how Joseph responds when he finds out that Mary's pregnant? He's going to divorce her. Because Joseph knows virgin births don't happen. So the only logical explanation is, I'm not the father, so somebody else is. And Mary Magdalene is reasoning in this way. But notice she still leaves and goes to report it to Peter and John, but she shares with them her skepticism. But notice all of this changes for Mary a few verses down. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Stop there. Notice Mary's return to the empty tomb. And when she returns, she starts crying. Why? She thinks someone's taken the body of Jesus. She's still convinced he's dead. But notice what happens. Look at the end of verse 11. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So she's telling angels that Jesus' body has been stolen. Still not convinced. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus, but she didn't now know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to Jesus, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I'll take him away. But everything changes in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She knows it's Jesus now. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Get this, verse 18, this is key. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. So this is the second time Mary goes to the disciples, right? First time she tells them about the empty tomb. Second time she says, I've seen the risen Lord. Now, folks, I really want you to get this. This is key, too. In John's account, Mary is the first eyewitness of the empty tomb and of the risen Lord. Now, if John is making this story up to deceive people into believing in a resurrection, it makes no sense whatsoever for him to give us this testimony. And I'll tell you why. In the first century, in this culture, a woman's testimony was not considered legitimate and valid. Now, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's a good thing. I think it's wrong, but that's the way it was in the first century. And that's a very important detail in this story, because if that's true, and John is trying to trick people into believing in Jesus, then why would he give us a, a, an account of this testimony that would not be considered reliable and valid? It's a pretty good question, right? The first three witnesses of the empty tomb from the scriptures are ladies. 
And the first eyewitness of the risen Lord is a woman. She's the one that goes back and announces to the disciples about the resurrection. Christ sends her. Now, if this was a made-up story that John is telling to convince people of a resurrection, it makes no sense that he would, he would produce a story that would include the eyewitness testimony of a woman. Now, be honest with me. How many of y'all have ever told a story in here? Anybody? Some of y'all are telling stories right now. Ever told a story? Am I the only one? No. Yeah, Brent. That's right. Thanks for confessing. I just pointed him out. He sits on the back row so y'all couldn't see him. Brent raised his hand. All right. You ever played a trick on someone, tried to get them to believe something that's not true? When you do that, you include details that are convincing, that'll be received and believed right away. You don't include details that'll immediately discredit your story. So let's go back to John's account once again. Why does he make mention of this testimony of a woman that would not be acknowledged and esteemed and respected in that day? Why? Because he's telling the truth. He's telling the story exactly the way it happened. That's the only reason John would tell this story in this way and include this testimony. That's the first piece of evidence John gives. He mentions an unlikely witness. Another piece of evidence that he gives us for the resurrection is the empty tomb. Point number two. Empty tomb. This is a big one. As we've said already, the first eyewitness of the empty tomb was Mary Magdalene, and there were two other ladies with her. Now let's look at the second group to visit the tomb. Look at it with me in verse 2 once again and following. So Mary ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John again, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. So John's bragging a little bit here that he beat Peter to the tomb. He's doing the writing. And he reached the tomb first, and and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and when he went into the tomb, he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So let's consider what we have here. First, Mary visits the tomb. She finds it empty. She goes back and reports to Peter and John and tells them Jesus' body is gone. And so they take off in a dead sprint toward the tomb. John beats Peter, but they get there and they both find the same thing. And I want you to notice another important thing here. Notice how detailed John is here. He tells us, the reader, that he saw the linen cloth lying there, and then he noticed that the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, was not lying with the linen cloth, but was folded up and lying by itself. And you're probably hearing all that, you think a big deal. What does that have to do with anything? Well, I'll tell you. Once again, context is key here. Remember, John is the one writing. 
And he is giving us specific details of this experience exactly the way he remembered it. He's so detailed. You ever had something significant happen in your life? You remember what you were doing. You remember the day. You remember all the events surrounding it. This made a huge impression on John. He's saying here in this account, I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember that the linen cloths were lying in one place and the face cloth was folded up and lying in another place, which is probably what Jesus did, right? Took it off, folded it, lied aside, no need for that anymore. And John is, he, he's giving us every little detail exactly how he remembered it. He's saying, I was there, I remember it as clear as day. John was there, folks. He saw these things with his own eyes. He later says in 1 John chapter 1, you have this in your spiritual growth guide, beginning in verse 1, listen to this. That which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. What John's saying here is this. He's saying we're not passing along fables here. We're not telling some kind of fairy tale. We saw these things with our own eyes. We've heard these things with our own ears. We've felt these things with our hands. He says we're eyewitnesses to these things. When the gospel writers give these detailed accounts of the earthly ministry of of Jesus and when they tell of his, his death and his crucifixion, they're not telling stories. They're giving us a detailed account exactly the way it happened. They're showing us, the reader, we were there. We witnessed these things we're reporting. And notice John also says, he says, when I saw these things, With my own eyes, John chapter 20, verse 8, he said, when I saw, I believed. I believed. The empty tomb was enough for John. Now, he didn't understand the full significance of the resurrection, as he says in verse 9. But he does tell us that when he saw this, he believed. The full understanding of the significance of the resurrection would come later through the teachings of Christ during his post-resurrection ministry and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But notice here that John says the empty tomb was enough for him to believe. Folks, the empty tomb is a vital piece of evidence for the Christian faith. It is. Remember I told you about my my professor earlier who who said if they could only find the body of Jesus, the Christian faith could be done away with. Now, though he did not believe in the resurrection, he acknowledged the fact that the empty tomb is a key piece of evidence in favor of Christianity. Listen, like it or not, whatever you believe about Jesus, you have to address the empty tomb. Some have tried. Some say... They went to the wrong tomb. Some of these are just, I I laugh thinking about them. The other one is the swoon theory. they, They argue that Jesus passed out. He didn't die, but he passed out on the cross, and then they put him in the tomb. And later, in the cool of the tomb, he woke back up, somehow moved that big boulder by himself and got by the guards without anybody seeing him. Maybe he had a trap door or something. Then there's others who 
argue like Mary Magdalene and the others that, that someone stole the body. But what's interesting about that is if, if someone, one of the disciples stole the body, does it make sense for them to stay at the scene of the crime and may, be bold witnesses for the resurrection? Don't you think they would have gone elsewhere to some obscure place where that could not be easily refuted? But they don't. The reason why all of these explanations, they've been explained away. They've been picked apart. This eyewitness account written by John thousands of years ago still stands strong today. John says, I saw the empty tomb with my own eyes. I was there. And guess what, folks? The tomb is still empty today. John says in verse 31 of John chapter 20, we have written these things down so that you, the reader, would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. That's John's purpose for writing his gospel. So the empty tomb gives strong evidence for the resurrection. Third notice, John makes mention of the various appearances of the Lord Jesus. Like we said earlier, when talking about the eyewitness account of Mary Magdalene, not only did she see the empty tomb, but she saw the risen Lord. She was not the only one. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now now notice here that these appearances of Jesus were not isolated. They were not limited to one or two people. Jesus appears to a group of his disciples. We're told elsewhere that Jesus appeared to tons more people multiple times. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, Beginning in verse 4, you'll read this this week. He says, He, Jesus, was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then He appeared to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In this passage, Paul appeals to hundreds of credible eyewitnesses. He mentioned several by name. I mean, that is just an overwhelming amount of evidence Paul gives us here, right? Notice he says, most of whom are still alive. You know, a dead eyewitness doesn't do you much good, does it? You know, sometimes on those courtroom dramas you see on TV, you have corrupt people trying to kill off eyewitnesses because they know how damaging their testimony is. Paul says, you got hundreds of eyewitnesses alive and well, and you can go ask them. They'll tell you the exact same thing. And many of these eyewitnesses live to the latter half of the first century. John was one of them. John was one of the youngest of the disciples. He lived to the latter half of the first century, and we actually have writings and details about the lives of those who followed John, his disciples, Polycarp and others, who lived in the second century, who were martyred for the Christian faith because they had heard from the eyewitness John that Christ was risen. And they went and they laid their lives down for the Lord. So you had these vocal eyewitnesses all throughout the first century, sharing their story, how they had seen the risen Christ. Can you imagine 
living during that time, hearing their testimony. How awesome would that be? How many of y'all like watching the History Channel? Y'all like it and watch like the World War II specials and hear about those who were there? How many of you would love to hear a good documentary about Jesus and his life and death and resurrection? There's a lot of junk that comes on today on A&E and those other stations. How many of y'all would like to hear a good documentary of Jesus' life and then hear from the eyewitnesses who were there? That's what they had in the first century. I told this to those in the early service. I don't know about you, but I'd want to be in their small group. You know? Be sharing about the gospel and then be like, hey, can you give us, you were there, tell us about it. I'd probably let them teach it. That would probably be the smart thing to do. That would have been amazing. They were there. They, they saw Christ with their own eyes. That had to be incredible. Well, in John chapter 20, verse 24 through 29, John tells us about one of these encounters. I love this story. Story of Thomas. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never, never believe. Now notice here, during the earlier appearance in verses 19 through 23, Thomas wasn't there. But the disciples who were tell him about it, but Thomas is skeptical. He doesn't believe their testimony. And he says, unless I could see the mark of the nails in his hands and and place my finger into them and my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas wanted hard evidence. He was convinced resurrections like this don't happen. So he says, unless I see it with my own eyes and feel it with my own hands, I will never believe. Man, you talk about someone who has an outlook that mirrors the skeptics in our world today. That's Thomas. Now, Thomas often gets a bad rap. Truth of the matter is, most of the disciples did not believe till they had seen the risen Christ with their own eyes and were told when Jesus appeared earlier, he showed them his hands and his side and then they were, were told that they believed, right? They're all skeptical at first. So again, we, we see here, we're not dealing with ignorant, uneducated, superstitious imbeciles here. These men and women were rational and reasonable. Before seeing the empty tomb, before encountering the risen Lord, they did not even entertain the idea of a resurrection. So Thomas here is not the exception. But though he's skeptical, notice how it changes when Jesus walks into the room. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Of all the appearances, this is one of the most convincing. Don't you agree? Notice here, not only does Jesus appear to Thomas, not only does he show him the wounds of crucifixion, he lets him feel them, his hands inside. And then notice Thomas makes one of the the greatest confessions in all of Scripture. He says, my Lord and my God. Now I want you to notice something here. Does Jesus rebuke him? No. You know, there are some people today who say, the Bible doesn't, 
show doesn't teach that Jesus claimed to be God. You kidding me? What did we just read? Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus accepts the claim as he should because he is. Well, there's one final piece of evidence, one final proof John gives here of Jesus' resurrection. We have the unlikely witness, empty tomb, various appearances, and then the future church. In verse 29, Jesus alludes to the fact that there's going to be a future remnant of followers, a future group of believers who are going to believe in him, who are going to trust in Christ without seeing. Verse 29, Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He says there's going to be a future group of believers who, though they have not seen, will believe. Believers, that's us. That's us. Did you know that our existence is proof of Jesus' resurrection? Did you know that? The very fact that we're gathered here today is proof that Jesus lives. We don't often think about this, but it's it's true. Our existence gives strong evidence for Jesus' resurrection. If you're here this morning and there's been a point in your, your life when you've turned from your sin and have trusted Christ alone for salvation, if you're trusting in Him today, you're living by faith on a daily basis. If you're here that in, in Christ is your God and King, He's your Lord and living in and through you, that is proof that Jesus lives. If you've been crucified with Christ and you've been raised to walk in newness of life, that is proof that Jesus lives. So what's the simple takeaway here, folks? Live to prove that He lives. Live out that resurrection power before the world and let the world see your deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We're to live lives sold out for Christ. We're to show off His resurrection power, direct all the glory and the praise toward Him. Like I said a few weeks ago, we're to be flashing arrows pointing to Jesus. That's what our life's supposed to be like. So that people look at us and say, I know Jesus lives because here's the evidence right here. Let me close with this. I want to end this morning just by asking you a simple question. What say you? You've heard the evidence. So so what say you? Do you believe it or not? Did he rise or didn't he? Maybe you came in this morning skeptical. You came in thinking to yourself, "That's, that's not possible. Dead people don't rise. If this is you, let me bring this point up once again. Think about this for a minute. Every person from our story today who approached that tomb expected to see Jesus in it. But they didn't. They just didn't. They thought that death had defeated Christ, but they soon found out that Christ had conquered death through his own death. They thought death had put the stinger in Christ, but soon discovered that he put the stinger in death. He overcame it, he defeated it, and though he died on the third day, the first day of a week, on a Sunday, he rose again. Here we have John laying out this evidence for us, pleading with us, saying, Christ told us these things were going to happen. 
He, he told us that he was from above, that he was God who had come down to dwell among us to accomplish salvation for us. He told us these things, and though at first we doubted, we've seen him for who he truly is, and we now believe. And John is pleading with us in his letters to believe as well. He's pleading with us who were not there, who did not see what he saw, to believe his testimony and to consider the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Believe and trust in him so that we through him could have life in his name. So the question I leave you with this morning is this. What say you? Do you believe it? Do you believe in the resurrection? If not, I pray God would open your heart to this truth. And as a result, you would turn away from your life of sin that you would look to and trust in Christ alone for your salvation so that believing in him you might have life in his name.